0: all special sp nation i'm your host scott piper because you can't have sp nation without the sp on today's episode i am joined by a really special guest mr jim robinson and what makes jim so special you may ask well for starters he worked as an imagineer in one of the most important decades in disney history and played was a pretty big part of Epcot when it opened, and he worked for. Um, you, you said you worked for Disney World at in a, No, well,
1: it, it, it was. It's uh, technically back then. It was called uh, Wed, W-E-D, which stands for Walter Elias Disney. But uh, now it's called uh, Walt Disney Imagineering. It's the same thing. And then I actually worked for. Technically, we had. Badges that were called PICO, P-I-C-O, which stands for Project Installation Coordination Office, which uh, was just the designation of people that were allowed on the Epcot site during construction.
0: At what time period did you actually start working at Epcot?
1: Well, let me, let me give you a kind of my Disney history first. That'll yeah, that'll get absolutely. You yeah, on absolutely. How, how I got got into Epcot. I um. I started, believe it or not, in characters um, in America on Parade back in 1976 when I was 15 because they needed people that uh, wouldn't faint during the parade, wouldn't fall over because the heat was so insane. They actually recruited us from uh, our soccer team (laughs) because we're (laughs) out in the hot sun running around and they needed people that could endure the Florida heat in a... Big giant costume like that if you look it up they were big giant dolls and they were really heavy they're like 40 or 50 pounds and imagine wearing the world's most thickest parka you've ever had in your entire life plus these giant shoulder pads to make it look you like you were big and then put on a, a football helmet but on the football helmet it had a 40 pound weight and it was screened in the front so they couldn't see your face in it and you had to dance or walk or do something from Frontierland the beginning of Frontierland where Big Thunder Mountain is all the way down through Frontierland over the Liberty Square Bridge and then through uh, down Main Street USA and then out through the uh, and parade for the parade exit right there by the uh, firehouse of the Disney Disney fireman fire, firehouse. And, and, uh, I, and I actually, to make it worse, I actually pushed a cannon. <laughs> if you look at it, you ever see there, there's like one of the one of the ones I did was uh, the the Revolutionary War uh, characters. And I pushed a cannon down that whole parade route. <laughs> like, it was insane. Anyway, I can't believe I did it anyway. Right. Uh and then and then from there I uh trans when I was, you know, the parade ended and time to go somewhere at Disney because I was there and I, I worked in Pecosville Cafe and Foods for a little while until uh uh nineteen seventy-eight when I transferred over to uh Frontierland Operations, where I worked in Frontierland, where I became a uh, at riverboats and keel boats and canoes and country bear jamboree and all of those, all those places in frontier land where I ended up becoming a lead at, uh, canoes and, uh, Tom Sawyer's Allen rafts, driving the rafts and being in the haunted, haunted mansion. And then just kind of was there for the, this all goes into something. And then that was there for uh, opening crew at big Thunder Mountain Railroad. And while I was an opening crew at Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, I was also going to school for electronics at the same time I had graduated from high school by then. And after I was finishing up my two-year electronics degree and, uh, and, and um, Big Thunder Mountain was opening, uh, they had Imagineers there. And I met some of the, I met some of the guys there. And told them I had interest in electronics and how I wanted to work with some of the new things that they were projects they were doing, including Epcot. And I and I had electronic experience. So uh, about 1980, they gave me a job as a kind of a gopher to, and doing blueprints and things like that for for uh, for. Disney Imagineering and the, and the coordination of Epcot and because one of the things again back in the day we all yeah, we all it's hard to Just like today. It's hard for a lot of the people in this generation today to imagine editing audio on a cassette deck or uh, on a reel-to-reel deck where they had to literally cut tape at the same time there were no computers and everything was done on blueprints, drawn blueprints and uh, the blueprints had to be updated. And whenever it got updated, you had to find the big giant blueprint and find the new version and get rid of the old version and replace the new one. So for a long time, I was in the the blueprint building sorting out blueprints along with uh, all those other things, just trying to get my foot in the door. And then I uh, just kind of was in the right place at the right time where I had had my electronics degree. And again, about 19, uh, it was about 1980, towards, towards the end of 80, um, I actually started working for what's called Department 510, which is the electronics side of Walt Disney Imagineering. And, uh, I mean, all of the, Walt Disney Imagineering is made up of a whole bunch of People that have different specialties, from art to sculpturing to electronics to mechanical to buildings to all kinds of stuff. And my department was uh, electronics, and all the state of the art electronic stuff that no one had ever done. So yeah, that 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 was uh, right at uh, right right at the beginning of
0: 1981. Awesome. You obviously have a huge amount of experience working for um, the Disney company. You know, like you said, you started in characters and then just kept moving up. You know, it got me thinking about the characters thing, you know, especially now with, you know, the way technology is, you can fit little fans and stuff in the costumes and some of them have uh, little cooling units and stuff. Did the costumes back then have anything in it, or was it just you were pretty much baking in there?
1: Oh, no, there was nothing. There was was nothing you were baking. There was absolutely (laughs) nothing, and they were a lot heavier also.
0: Yeah, Um, because of the fabrics and stuff at the time.
1: Yeah, well, no, I mean, no, the the fiberglass heads. Uh, I was also Blue and Br'er Bear, which also were those tall costumes with where you see out the neck and it has a big giant head and they they strap you in with a little back brace on it and then it, you you have almost like a seat belt that comes across you to to hold onto the back brace to hold on your shoulders that's how all those costumes are
0: when you when you uh, you said you started working on Epcot in very very early 80s what was the what was the layout of the time was there's still stuff being finalized. Um I know Journey into Imagination and Horizons, they weren't opening until 1983. And I think the um oh uh, what is it the Ocean Pavilion?
1: Oceans, yeah. Uh, the Living Seas.
0: Living Seas. I, I know that that wasn't even on the original map of the time. So was there other stuff that was still being finalized, like the Land Pavilion or World of Motion? Was that stuff no, still... No,
1: to be honest, all of it had um, the foundations and the buildings built. It, 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 the building part was the easy part of most of them, uh, where they actually had the frame of the building. The hard part was the, the stuff inside uh, to, to make the interiors, to make all the rides. The shovel of the building... And the foundations of the building were the very first thing and they were all there the only thing that wasn't there um, was uh, the seas uh, but imagination uh, opened only like three or four months afterwards and everything was there just wasn't open the inside of it the same goes with uh, horizons even though horizons opened uh, almost uh, a, a year after opening or less you know less than a year uh, the building was definitely there, and the C's was well on its way with the foundation as well. Um, so, the the, it, the hard part in all of the in all of them was putting together the interiors and putting together those things. That's what really was the hard part. But the shells of the building and foundations were all there.
0: Okay, you know it. it uh, it's something that you know so many people are interested in it and and you know people don't really think about everything that goes into the parks like the computer parts of it when especially at that time when you guys are working really on cassettes and um very early uh laser discs what was the biggest challenge you know just basically keeping that stuff running
1: well, what I, what I, what, it's not so much keeping the stuff running, it's making it run in the first place because nobody had ever done anything like this stuff that we were doing. I, I kind of remind everybody what, what the year and what, what this was. This was 1981 before the CD player existed. There were no CD players. CD players did not exist. They were not for sale. And there was so there's no no such thing as digital audio, and also uh, there were no personal computers. There were no such thing as personal computers. Steve Jobs had invented his thing. Bill Gates hadn't hadn't stolen any of those Xerox things for Windows <laughs> or any of that other stuff. None of that occurred. It wasn't there. Everything was done with big giant workstations and machine language and hexadecimal code, and there were only a couple of basic computer languages but the things that we were doing at disney uh couldn't be done in any real computer languages they all had to be done in machine code and if anybody knows what i, I keep on calling it machine code but it's called assembly language which is the actual everything is either a you have a, a hexadecimal number there every single bit had a hexadecimal number that was either a number, a letter or a command that was identified through the letters 00 and it was a 16 digit number where it went zero through nine, then it did A, B, C, D, E, F, and then the same thing. So the, lar- the smallest number was 00 and the largest number was F, F. And, but in between there, there was not enough- the first few numbers characters represented um letters and numbers but the rest of it was actually commands for it to do something in the machine code and so the the tough part was these workstations working in assembly language in this very cryptic code called uh, ddt which stands for, for dynamic debugging tool and uh a program called wordstar which later became a lot of a, but it was the first the language is something called CPM which which is everything which everything worked on which was the predecessor to DOS it, it was CPM was before DOS but a lot of those commands and everything was was from that old language really? and so the, the the trick was is to make you know Disney made their own computers and wrote their own software and because the computers didn't exist and they used what later on became used in PCs but they were using them in their own custom uh, computers to run things and and that's what I worked on did I answer your question
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> no you're doing um, a you're, you're doing a phenomenal job um no,
1: no, it, no the reason why I meant is like it's hard to get off track answering a specific question because it's so different. I mean, there were not people didn't really cassettes weren't common either. Most people used eight tracks back then. Yeah, eight track tape and uh, and records records were really common, uh, but laserdiscs uh, weren't a common thing either. While they they were used in certain applications at EPCOT. They, they, it wasn't a common thing. They used them for a different thing. On Laserdiscs weren't common. And they used them not for CDs because Laserdiscs preceded CDs. Right. And uh, it wasn't great quality back then. It still wasn't very good quality. All
0: right. So you mentioned that you did a lot of work on the uh, computers with Epcot. Um, Was that the computer uh, central area that you could walk by or walk through in CommuniCore?
1: Well, here's what it was, is that um, the computer system I worked with uh, all talked back to Computer Central. Okay. uh, Because Computer Central was just that. It was a... Okay, so in today's day, we have smart TVs and everything has the, the audio built into it. You don't need a big central hub. But back then, uh, the things that were out in the field all needed a central hub. There were no CDs. There was no mass audio storage. There was no way for any of that audio for any of the tapes to play in any of the pavilions. All the stuff going on. In the transportation pavilion and the ride there, and everything going on in the land pavilion, everything going on in American Adventure, everything in all those places, and all of the different animatronic rides that had audio in them. Um, Spaceship Earth. I, I mean, I could go land on uh, uh, the uh, back then the uh, you know any show that that had audio. The audio was in originated from big giant two inch tapes or cart tapes, which resembled eight track tapes, but were only two tracks. So they were a lot um, higher quality that were in computer central. And then they just with using amplifiers and and common technology, hard wired signals uh, from computer central to the pavilions where the audio played back through amplifier units, like your home stereo, but using just very long input cables, which is, which is pretty common even today. Think of, uh, how a mixer board is located a long way away from the stage of a concert. And that's roughly the same thing of how they ran the audio lines back in those days from computer central, all the way to the pavilions and what my the programs i the computers i worked on was the computers in each one of the pavilions that told computer central okay my show's starting uh, I, the, somebody in the theater pressed the button for the show to start and all the things for it to happen from there
0: so how many comp- so, how many computers were running the entire theme park at that time? Hundreds. Hundreds.
1: I mean, they had their there, there hundred. Well, again, Disney had made their own their own computers before the personal computer existed. That that's what the whole thing is. There there were no personal computers that existed, but there were mainframe computers, and the mainframe computers lived that held all the. Audio animatronic data and those lived at Computer Central because, again, they took special air conditioned rooms and all kinds of special stuff, and it made no sense to house them in the pavilion, especially for as much room as they took. So they had one central area, and that's where all of the data for the audio animatronics lived. That's where all the audio played back from, and it was a raised floor area that was always super cool because those computers ran hot. And uh, that's where all of it lived, except for some very rudimentary stuff, which is the stuff that I worked on too. Like, uh, yeah, there's a real weird line about what audio animatronics is. And and when a, when you had a large amount of data that couldn't fit on a very small thing in the pavilion, it had to be housed at Computer Central, like a animation or a signal to turn a curtain on or to close a curtain or to turn a light on. Those were all housed in the pavilion around the outside of Epcot. And if you notice now that you're thinking about it, uh, every now that I'm pointing it out, every pavilion kind of has a back door that no one could see and that you can't get to. And there's a road that runs all around the the outside of Epcot for everybody to get to it. So besides the internal part in commuticore where they needed it, then uh, there was, and, the, and there was access for that. Everybody got to places by car right, or bus. Well, back then the buses weren't running when we were constructing it. There yeah. were obviously no buses. So everybody went by truck or, or sneakers.
0: <laughs> right. Um. So was it true because there was a very longstanding rumor and um, it's kind of been debated whether or not it was real or not um, over in horizons. The, they said that the reason they couldn't really refurbish it or um, do something with it and they had to tear down horizons was cause there was a bunch of sinkholes back in that section of the park do you know if that was an actual yeah, thing? That was true. an actual reason for that not going true. down.
1: Completely not true. Completely not true. They, the 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 ride was a horrific maintenance nightmare, and uh, and not very many people went on. Really, and, that... and it, it 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 was it was a cool design, but a maintenance nightmare.
0: Really, because that's um. That's kind of surprising because so many people have considered that to be kind of like pre- the predecessor to Carousel of Progress. That I, I didn't think it, I didn't know it was that heavily. Um, oh,
1: they, the, the, as as somebody who did it and was there and worked on it, it's nothing like Carousel of Progress. It's more like Peter Pan's Flight, really, uh, be, because it was a hanging, it was a it was a hanging car that turned. And it, 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 and it had so many mechanical difficulties, it, but it was it was hanging like Peter Pan's flight, and uh, it, it yeah, it, and the capacity wasn't very big, and, and it it wasn't very popular either. But you know, they built. Uh, people don't see, but you know, Mission Space is at the same spot where Horizon sat, and Mission Space, believe it or not takes up more room than horizons did so if there were sinkholes back there they certainly wouldn't have wouldn't have constructed a centrifugal force machine essentially is like a roller coaster that spun people around on something that was sinking
0: (laughs) right yeah no exactly that's that's one thing that i've always questioned especially because you know, it was one of those things where you heard that there were sinkholes and then it, there was not. But if there were sinkholes, I mean, World of Motion at there that were, time was really there were, close. There too. were
1: no sinkholes out there. I mean, Disney, one thing Disney is smart with is they constructed things. They do, they do all their tests beforehand. Right. And they do all kinds of geological places before they uh, decide where to do it. where where to build something and essentially epcot was just grassland and swampland where uh where there was no like a lot of the other areas in disney world and and it it, you know there's no sinkholes around there Sinkholes do form in a lot of areas but there's kind of specific geological areas that sinkholes form from and uh just where they built epcot isn't one of them
0: okay well, definitely thank you for clearing that up. That, that's one of those weird things that you kind of wonder why they said sinkholes to begin with.
1: Yeah. And, and that was just an urban legend. It's, it, it's right up there with Disney is, is frozen at the top of Cinderella Castle, Walt <laughs> Disney himself, when the reality is if you know where to go and you know where to look, Walt Disney is buried in L.A., and right? You can find his grave if you know where to look. Wow! Really? <laughs> yeah. No, the, the research it on. It's it's. You can find that on the internet. You can find exactly exactly where it is. It's in Burbank, and you can go right to where Walt Disney's buried.
0: So it's not in the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean attraction. <laughs>
1: not in Pirates of the Caribbean either. Although <laughs> the Disneyland uh, did have that was one of the trivia things. Disneyland did have a real skeleton in the uh, in the in the ride.
0: But the uh, the one in Walt Disney World, it was that wasn't the real skeleton, though, right? No, no. Okay, yeah, th- that's what I was thinking. Like I'd heard the real skeleton, and then the um another you know rumor that you always hear about with Disney World is, and you can probably actually sh- shed some light on this. Um, you hear it all the time well, about people.
1: Well, plus I'll say the rumor about the the real skeleton at Disneyland. That was like in the 50s when, it, or 60s when it was a real skeleton. But it right. was eventually replaced with a plastic one.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, so it, there's, it,
1: still, there's no real skeleton in Pirates of the Caribbean anymore in Disneyland.
0: Well, it, it's I, I could kind of see how that ended up happening, though. And it's the uh, the same thing that happened to Poltergeist. It was they, uh, they used a lot of real skeletons for the film Poltergeist. And the reason for that was... At the time, it was cheaper to just get real skeletons than to fabricate, yeah. you know, real looking skeletons, which you would kind of think with the Disney Corporation being as big as it is, that, that you know, cost wouldn't necessarily be uh, issue well, with it. You know, that,
1: th- things were a lot different back in the 50s. And I think that they, they probably just back then, 50s and 60s, when Pirates of the Caribbean was – well, not 50s, but, you know, when Pirates of the Caribbean was – It it was was a lot different. Things were way different back
0: then. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: So, So what was the rumor you were talking about about Disney World, though?
0: Oh, yes. Rumor is, you know, and you hear it all the time about the Haunted Mansion and people taking ashes of their loved ones and dumping it either on the ride or on the grounds. Did you ever see or hear anything about that at your time at Disney World?
1: Okay, so I used to be lead at the Haunted Mansion. And what the lead is, the Haunted Mansion, you're the guy in charge of the attraction. And one of the things that you do is you walk the ride at the end of the night, to pick up people's lost sunglasses and hats and all kinds of crap, and make sure somebody didn't get out of the ride and walk around. Because back then, again, there wasn't a lot. There wasn't really any electronics. So if somebody would jump out of the ride, you really had no idea they were doing it. Although no, no one ever did because you, the clamshells were closed. Right. Uh, or it was very difficult to do it. But, um, you know, I never saw any piles of anything. I never saw any ashes of anything like that. And if there was, there there was a cleaning, whoever's poor little ashes, they might have dumped in there. They, poor little ashes, got sucked up in a vacuum cleaner of a custodian guy that was, that was third shift custodial that <laughs> vacuumed because they haunted mansion looks dusty and looks spiderwebby and all that other kind of stuff the floor is cleaned every single solitary night by third shift custodial including inside the ride and so anything that somebody might have done or dumped got vacuumed up and it was it was gone now so if anybody I never saw any piles of ashes or anything like that nor would I, I, and I would have probably noticed something like that. Right. Because as, as, I did it. I worked there for a while. But, um, you know, people people all the time, who knows if they get away with back then bringing in ashes and putting it in a flower bed or something like that. You know, maybe yeah. that happened. But uh, certainly not in the Haunted Mansion or anything like that. But you never know. Somebody could have dumped stuff and dumped some ashes in the middle of the ride if it's a small world or something and no one would have ever known. Right. Well, but any anything where you really had to clean up anything, you know, like haunted mansion or anything like that, they they just got vacuumed up.
0: Right, and you know that's that's another one of those things. Like I said, that you know if you're if you're a Disney fan or you know you like theme parks in general, you you always kind of search for you know the rumors and. What happens, like the urban legends and stuff like that, and that's just that always seems to appear on every single list is you know the ashes. Yeah. and then the other thing is um, you know about now, could
1: they have, now could they have gotten away with maybe spreading little bits of it on the lawn while they're in line? maybe yeah <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, but even still, you know it, it you know, who knows? I mean, it just got soaked up with the the rest of the dirt because, again, they do, you know, it might have got spread around from the mower the next day because they mow that stuff twice a day, you know, immaculately to make it look terrifying.
0: Yeah, exactly. Speaking of terrifying, does, how does the Haunted Mansion look like at night once all the shows are actually done? Does it feel creepy or does it give off a, uh, You know, when the lights are on, it kind of gives away all the secrets of everything like that.
1: Yeah, it's exactly the opposite, especially when the lights are on. Uh, I mean, maybe I was numb to it by working on it, but when the lights are on, you're walking through. uh, There's no and the audio is off and there's no audio running and the things aren't doing anything. It's it's like going through any other kind of big building or warehouse and uh, it's not it's not scary at all because it's the lights are the work lights are pretty bright actually and from while while from the clamshell uh you know the the doom buggy and and that in the with the lights off and the perception that you have in the haunted mansion seems spooky on the other side of the clamshell that you don't see and with the lights on there's all kinds of just you know regular wood and regular stairs and uh handrails and all kinds of stuff that is pretty darn normal and i i really give it to anybody who's listened to the podcast and anybody that has been to a set that has been to a movie set or has ever been to a sitcom set knows that when you're in front of the camera the sitcom set sure it looks just like an apartment or it looks just like something but the second you go through a door and you go behind it, it's nothing but a big, huge thing of wood, and all you see is two-by-fours and, and unfinished walls with no insulation. And and you it, and also, it's in a soundstage, so it doesn't connect to the top of the soundstage or anything like that. And it's very like looking at a, a piece of cabinetry or something like that. It's very not what it looks like on the other side. And that's the same thing with the Haunted Mansion. The Haunted Mansion especially... All of those areas that we would walk through are, you know, super well lit, especially in the dark areas where they were dark and with the work lights on. They were just completely well lit and there are stairs and there are. And the reason why they're all there is because also they're 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 all there is because in the case of the ride breaking down and having to take people out and walk them out and evacuate them. And that definitely happens. Yeah. It happens to all those rides and have to be evacuated out and it has to be safe for the people to be able to walk out and so there's handrails there's steps there's there's nothing crazy and it's definitely not spooky and you can see very well uh because and it's very well lit because again just you don't want to get sued by somebody trying to walk down some stairs in the dark while they're evacuating the ride
0: right yeah that's um that's a lot of really cool information about the behind the scenes about it, because, you know, you're right when you're actually on the ride and, you know, it's dark and you have the music on and you have all the effects going, you know, it, it feels totally immersive. So I, I'm sure once everything stops, you know, when you get a chance to look at all the details of everything, it totally changes your perception of it.
1: Um, well, especially because the clamshell's moving. Yeah. And when you're standing there and walking around, and you're not buzzing by these things, and the thing's not turning, because you only get a few seconds glimpse at every one of them when you're standing there and you're you're in it in the work thing, and it's not moving. It's a object. It's just another piece of something, a piece of furniture, and. And you and you're not just glimpsing at it and seeing a couple seconds of it in the dark. You're it's just there.
0: <laughs> right. Did you have a favorite ghost on the ride?
1: Uh, you know that's uh, you don't even see the ghosts. Uh, yeah, honestly, it sounds that sounds a little odd to say. Uh, I I didn't even think of him, any of them as ghosts or characters or any of that. Uh, I always thought Madame leota was pretty fascinating I, I don't want to tell the secrets over a podcast of how they do it
0: right and
1: and things like that but you know when it's turned off it's turned off and Madame leota isn't doing anything yeah it's just there. <laughs> it's, an,
0: it's essentially
1: <laughs> an empty crystal ball that, oh, yeah. that, that, you, that you see I, although it's not, it's not I mean you could you could find on the internet how all this stuff is done
0: oh yeah totally. and,
1: uh. None of it is, it, it's all just clever usage of very common things, just not doing them like they've been done usually.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, I believe it's the actual dinner scene in the Haunted Mansion where it's the, uh, what's called the Peppers yeah, the Ghost ball, effect.
1: The ballroom scene. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, again, I didn't, I just, I worked as a ride operator back then in the lead. Then I didn't, I didn't actually do anything with Imagineering to that, but, uh, the Imagineers when they came up with that and how they did all of that is pretty interesting on how they use a very common thing, but they do it in a grandiose scale where it's hard to imagine they could do something that big to make that happen.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, You know, even though you say you're, you know, what you did at Epcot and even as a ride operator, I would still consider what you've done to be pretty significant overall. Like, you know, I mean, it's you always have like the famous guys that everyone talks about in the uh, Disney scene, like Tony Baxter and um, Exintensia. And those guys and stuff. But, you know, it's not – Disney World isn't just a one-person operation. It's thousands of people that keep yeah. those parks running. Well, I, I,
1: I get my, my part – exactly. Well, my part, you know, the, the thing where I have respect for a lot of the guys that were my bosses is there – and the guy that I worked with directly doing this is uh, – and I, I brag about this guy. Steve Alcorn is his name. Oh, yeah. The guy was one of the main uh, Imagineers that I worked for uh, in Imagineering and I was installing his stuff and he was the one that designed it. And he was the one that came up with it. And and then he had a boss that said, here's the concept. We're going to do a concept of a giant of of, of a journey through uh, transportation or or or, we're, or or imagination or or. Whatever we were, it was actually. I'm, I'm going to say, use a specific examples. We're going to have this imagination pavilion and all these things. And I want to come up with the guy that was the boss. I want to come up with something where something that's never been done before and, and something where you step on something and a, and a piece of audio plays instantly. And as many times as you step on it, uh, uh, it plays back instantaneously. Now, again, that's common today with digital samplers, but there were no digital samplers back then. There were no CD players. And, and so, he, he, Steve, can you come up with this? And Steve came up with how to do it and is a genius. I mean, and came up with these circuits that were used for essentially electronic gauges. And things like that, A to D converters uh, or D to A converters, that would take, that would do that, that were meant for one thing, and then he repurposed them to do digital audio before the CD player was invented. My job was to install it and make it work, and he showed me what the design was, and he showed me how to do it, and I was the one that was the the worker bee. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and, right. and,
1: and got it to go and install the new thing and we'd go back to the shop and change something else and then he'd change the code and I'd go back and install it and he'd ask me how it worked and I'd go, oh, this happened or this happened and and, and we did that with the rainbow tunnel thing too where he programmed all that. I mean, and there are, there are a lot of things that were groundbreaking back then that people don't realize were, you know, I always say that digital sampler, we were doing digital audio before cd players existed right i mean and, and doing that before anybody had done digital audio before they ever heard of it and and then doing synchronization of lights where in the imagination really, you stepped on something and stepped on this one piece of carpet and that was outlined like a hexagon and when you stepped on it it made a sound of a of an elephant and then lit up, or the next one was the sound of a tambourine, and the next one was the sound of a xylophone. There was actually a scale, and you could play a song if you knew what what was to step on in the right order. And it was done usually digital EPROMs that were, uh, it's hard to describe, but the only way you could program them was this special big giant recorder on a workstation And then the only way to erase them and reuse them was to put them under an ultraviolet. It had a little window on the chip and you'd put it underneath an ultraviolet light for 48 hours that were the, they called it an eraser. And the ultra, it was a special device that had this high intensity ultraviolet light that you put these things underneath to erase it. And it had to sit in it for like four hours to erase the data so you could uh, program it again with the new code and uh yeah a lot it was it was it wasn't as straight now the things are just so straightforward and everything is just so crazy straightforward that uh you know it's it's hard to imagine
0: you know it's kind of hard to grasp around everything you know from the technical side of things we're gonna take a very quick break and when we come back i'll ask you a few final questions and then wrap up the episode sounds good All right. All right. We are back with Jim and we are talking all about Imagineering, Epcot, uh, fun stuff at Disney World. You said you worked on the Rainbow Tunnel, which, you know, a lot of fans of Michael Jackson will know that that's the famous Rainbow Tunnel that he's photographed in a few times. What all did you do with the Rainbow Tunnel and the whole Imagination Pavilion?
1: What I worked on, again, I worked on the same system that I worked on everything else in the imagination pavilion where, like, for example, in the 3D theater, you know, my my system was the one where the ride operator pressed the button and then it closed the curtains and turned on the projectors and did lights and, and did all that other stuff. But during, in the ride itself, well, you, you had three sections essentially back then in the imagination pavilion. You had the ride. You had the theater, and then you had the um, what was then upstairs, and you had the and now escaping me what it was called, but it was a whole area of all unique mini uh, experiences that you could do.
0: Was it the and what, was it the play pavilion? Uh,
1: no, 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 not the play pavilion at all. It, 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 it was it was similar to what. Is supposed to be in the play but that, but that's where the rainbow tunnel was, and the, the one of the things the rainbow tunnel came from, what I've talked about a couple times about this digital audio thing where you could it, there was a room you could walk into and they had little hexagons in different color carpet on the floor and when you stepped on them, it played a certain sound, and that was done in digital audio before digital audio existed. And after you exited that room, you exited the room through the rainbow tunnel. And what the theory of the rainbow tunnel was is, when you walked down it, whatever color that you uh, it would assign you a color, and if that color would follow you through the tunnel, and so the tunnel would change as you walked through the tunnel. And and what the way it was done is with that very software, I, I think I've talked a couple of same same machine language stuff. Yeah. And it was infrared sensors that were uh, small little infrared sensors just like, uh, you know, you would operate a the same ones that they use in garage doors today where it trips. Uh, uh, you know how in a, in a garage door today, if the garage door is getting ready to shut, and you accidentally put your foot underneath it, the garage door will stop oh, and yeah. it'll open back up. Well, it's the same exact technology, except we were using it in 1982, <laughs> 81 and <laughs> 82, and there were hundreds of them and they were all lined up uh, inside the waist high at this uh, waist high in the, in the tunnel And one of the things that was kind of a fascinating thing that they did back then is they would use this material that was only opaque to infrared light. So when you looked at it, it looked black, and you couldn't see anything. But behind it was the infrared transmitters, and it would shine through this material, and you couldn't tell. You couldn't see it, and you couldn't see anything. You couldn't see the last one, so it just looked black but behind them were those infrared sensors that would just trip every time somebody walked through it. And that's, and our, and we, it was programmed. So every time one tripped the color would follow you through and the neon light that was over the top of it would change color every with the person. So if one person, if so, if, so for example, let's just say the whole rainbow tunnel was blue and one person walked through it, the green color, which might be the next color. I don't remember what the order was. Uh, would follow them all the way through, and so if only they walked through, it would the whole thing would change to green after they walked through it. Now, what happened is it would be multiple people walking through it, and one person would be green, and then thus another person behind him red, another person yellow and blue, and those colors would fall through. Them. So, like in the picture with Michael Jackson, there was a rainbow of colors that you saw, when the reality was is the way it was supposed to work is if the thing that was more impressive is if one person went through it one at a time, they could change the whole thing to another color and the new color would follow them through.
0: So what would happen if say one person was going in and you know, you did, you'd, you'd advertly have one of those kids who decides to walk backwards through the tunnel Man. while someone's going well, through.
1: It's it funny you say that because when we initially programmed it, one of the initial versions of it, that when you found bugs of things, one of the initial versions of it, the thing would get all kinds of confused when you had somebody go backwards. But eventually, we, you know, within the next few months, you know, it took us a while to figure it out. But you changed the software, so it kind of forced anybody passing or any passing somebody or anybody going backwards or anything to ignore people going backwards and anybody passing, you know, just catch up to them and then they were the next person and it it had to be done that way because the original programming of it tried to take into account those things happening and in the reality of things working it made it a jumbled mess and so while it would work it just made it all kinds of colors when somebody went backwards or somebody passed somebody else and it would make these weird things so finally to make it look like work like it was supposed to they just Ignored everybody, passing somebody else, and ignored anybody going backwards. But it wasn't like, but and then it looked awesome. It did what it was supposed to do. Uh, but you know, that's one of the things of of test and adjust.
0: <laughs> right. So, when did you really leave Imagineering behind, and what was the main reason for leaving it?
1: Well, you know, after it was done, I left uh, pretty much after the imagination pavilion was done. You know, I because I was so young, I was actually then only, you know, twenty-four. And uh it was and um you know when you when you say you have electronic a two year electronics degree and worked in Walt Disney Imagineering for four years the three they you have a ticket to go anywhere. And I, I moved on and got a job at ATT technologies. But they you know, there wasn't anything to do once it was all constructed and once it was done, there was there was nothing left to do. I actually that's not true. I didn't do imagination. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> Completely didn't know why I said it, because I worked on Horizons as well. And uh I, I I left right after right after Horizons had finished. I don't know why I said that about imagination, because <laughs> I worked on Horizons too. Completely forgot about that ride. And not wow I don't know how, but I mean it, that was that was complicated in its own way you know the back I think uh, I was talking about uh, you know the laser discs and how they were used in a different way and uh, at the end of the ride on uh, the horizons you could choose your own little adventure on, on whether you were gonna go in an underwater sub real fast or a desert car or a flying one and yeah. you could choose between panels that came up and the person that voted the vote, you know, one each person chose and then the majority ruled. And then you got to see the right. Well that all worked on laser discs. So the computer that was on board, the the very rudimentary computer on board each one of those, it was a lot more high tech than anybody realizes.
0: Yeah,
1: um. you know one of the, one of the most high tech things that people never knew existed, and this was going to blow your mind probably. But one of the things that I thought was the most impressive, and I while I don't know it's still used or not, I know it was then, is that there was when you entered Epcot, you could buy these uh, infrared this headphones that had this infrared receiver, and it would translate it translate it to to whatever language. There was French, German, uh, Spanish, uh, Italian. And when you would go into these theaters, there were these infrared transmitters on the ceilings that would transmit to the people with the headphones via infrared and would transmit it in English to them. Or not English, I mean, in their foreign language, Spanish, French. Uh, German all, all the different things really and that was the first use of audio being transmitted over infrared that had used been done anywhere and they're transmitting this audio over infrared light radio waves
0: that's really cool um, I don't
1: know if they do it anymore I've, I, I, I've, I've never looked and I, I don't think they do it that way anymore obviously. Uh, it, it, but when you first went into EPCOT, uh, when EPCOT first opened, those all existed.
0: Was it how was it an extra fee for that?
1: No, they're totally free.
0: Wow, I didn't know that at all.
1: Totally free. Uh, now I, I wasn't involved in the, you know, whether they took somebody's driver's license or a deposit or anything like that. That there probably was something like that, but again, back then, that's what people looked up uh, stolen credit cards in books because they didn't have a way to yeah. look it up. So if <laughs> people were more honest and stuff like that, so who knows whether they took a driver's license or, or what they did. Right. But I do, and they may not have even, uh, gotten anything. They just want to hand it to the guy, you know, the person male or female. And, uh, it just was the honor system because they certainly couldn't have been used anywhere else.
0: Yeah. No. And, uh,
1: but that, but those existed. No, that was always really impressive technology to me. But again, that was being done in nineteen fricking eighty-two.
0: Yeah,
1: digitally over the airways through infrared.
0: Yeah, I mean, what Imagineers did and what you know, Wet Enterprises did to get everything running was it was so ahead of what literally the rest of the world was doing at that time you know and this is all for a big theme park you know a lot of people don't realize that disney brought so much more to not just pop culture but life in general just because of advances in computers and, you know, entertainment and everything else that, you know, sometimes you forget about everything that they had hands in.
1: No, exactly. And, uh, they had, a, they had a lot of, they invented a lot of technology, um, that just hadn't been invented because they wanted to do it themselves. And then did a lot of grandiose things. One of the most unbelievable feats of mechanical engineering, hardly anybody hears about, is the American Adventure Pavilion, which I worked on, the American Adventure Show, because the whole thing, all those animatronic figures are all on essentially a gigantic railroad track that goes underneath the stage. And that's why the stage is so big and high up, because all the animation is underneath it and gets rolled out. And it goes up and comes back down. And then the whole state, the whole thing moves and then nothing comes up. And it's a feat of mechanical engineering that is just unbelievable wow. because it's such a gigantic scale.
0: Yeah, I had no idea it ran like that.
1: Yeah, you, know, you again, you can find that on the Internet, too. In fact, there's even a, uh, a special all about the American Adventure Pavilion and how that thing works. And my cabinet was actually on one of those. The cabinet I worked on was actually on one of those on the railroad track because my stuff had to monitor everything else to make sure that when an error signal, it it sent it back. And so I had to crawl around that thing, obviously when it was stopped, but I mean, I still had to crawl up onto it and work on my thing on, on this railroad track thing. And, uh, you know, there, that's, I was really privy to a lot of stuff backstage stuff because of what my system worked, what I worked on. You know, just seeing that kind of stuff was just, it it, it, is mind-blowing in the scale.
0: So, you know, one question that's always asked, you know, in a lot of places I see, you know, and especially even at theme parks sometimes, is after you've spent a week at Disney and, you know, you've gotten, you know, really enchanted by the parks and the rides and just the atmosphere of Disney, so many people go home and want to ask the question, how do I do this? How does how do I turn this passion for Disney into a career? So how would you say someone could really get into imagineering or get into what you were doing at Disney in nineteen eighty-two? For, well, a for lot Disney. of it
1: is being at the right place at the right time. Disney likes to hire from within. And uh, hiring from within gives you a uh, a leg up for certain. And that's what happened with me. I was at the right place at the right time. I had been with Disney for six or seven years. I, I, I not six or seven, uh, five years. And um, I knew uh, how the company worked and where everything was. And... Uh, all that, all that other, all, the, all of that stuff. And, uh, it just was the right place, the right time when they needed people. Uh, and the same thing goes with anybody else that wanted a job in Imagineering and wants to do that kind of thing. It's kind of like, you know, if they're coming off of something and they're finishing something, you know, and they don't have any projects coming up and they're laying off the people they already have, that's obviously not a good time because when I was there, all of the you know all the Florida people that were there that worked on Epcot, well they all got laid off because there wasn't a job for the job was done. And they expected it. This wasn't a it wasn't a oh my gosh, I can't believe I lost my job. I mean everybody knew and they went on the next thing. All of the California based imagineers all then went to the next project which was then Tokyo Disneyland. Right. And then a lot of them worked on Tokyo Disneyland and then after that was completed uh, then they their next the next thing was Hollywood studios and they worked on those, and uh, but you know it, it was an influx of people. They needed more people to work on audio, uh, Hollywood studios, and then they needed less after it was finished. and And they needed more people out of Tokyo to work on the on the ground in Tokyo, uh, in Tokyo. But then when they left, you know, there's nothing left for them to do, and so. You know, it's all about timing and it's all about an education. I mean, if you're going to, if you're the big reason I got my job is because I was fresh out of school with an electronics degree and they needed somebody that knew electronics and, and had the basic electronic knowledge. If you're going to work in Imagineering and doing something in mechanical, you're going to need a mechanical engineering degree. If you need uh, if you're going to work in electronics or computers, you're going to obviously need a computer science degree and, 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 uh, experience working on similar kinds of things so there's definitely an education that that comes with it that if you want to do it you're going to have to be educated in the field that you're going to be doing on the other hand if you're more on the idea side of things and you're working your way up through the ranks and as on the supervisory side you know working actually at disney starting on i i have a close friend not close friend I have a somebody that I worked with that was a close friend back in the 70s that I worked with then, uh, stayed with the company and ended up in Imagineering uh, who didn't have any special education at all, but he had Disney experience and was very good at coordinating it and learning the Disney way and learning how to the proper way of doing it. And he's still out at Imagineering now one of my closest friends still and his job is documentation of all of the of all of the rides and and animatronics and everything working and he documents it as it was built and then goes and spot checks to make sure it's as good as it was when it first opened so his job is riding the rides at disney which that sounds crazy but in an analytical sense his job is to go on to the rides and make sure the animations are working correctly make sure the paint is right something doesn't need to be refurbished and make sure the operations of the ride are are doing it correctly still and uh that's his job but he didn't have any formal education at all for it so it just depends on uh you know what you're doing and, and, and what you're trying to do I know that sounds very general But you know it's, uh, it, it, it's it is what it is <laughs>
0: <laughs> No you gave a great answer I have one last question for you uh, Before we end sure. what, what is your absolute Best memory From your time at Disney World And Epcot oh,
1: Best memory Wow that is really, really a tough question. I'll give you a multiple choice answers, uh, multiple choice things uh, of what I love. Um, there was nothing like, because uh, I did come back to Disney after I left and started my own DJ, and I actually came back into entertainment and was like a guy on stage uh, hosting special events and i did i dj epcot center for the year 2000 which was just unbelievable having you know 110,000 people there all all excited out of their minds about the year 2000 and spending it at epcot and a mind-blowing fireworks display uh at the year 2000 and covered uh by every major network in the world uh but at the same time while I can say I did that, um, there was nothing like, uh, you know, working the stretch room in the Haunted Mansion and, you know, saying to the guys, work step into the dead center of the room and, and being that that guy. And while wow, that sounds like that was the most fascinating job, it came with the bad point While while you did that job, and that was a fun one, part of that job also was continuous walking on the load and unload belt for hours at two and a half miles an hour till your feet hurt or standing outside in the florida hot sun uh at 85 degrees in a full tuxedo you know oh, yeah. so so uh you know there was good with the bad but you know there was nothing like that there was nothing like i worked river boats and keelboats, and there's nothing like being a character and hosting people and being in the wheelhouse and talking to everybody and uh, or being driving a boat driving a keel boat uh, You know and 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 being your own little jungle cruise and the same thing with uh, being in canoes and Tom Sawyer's island rafts and, and and driving people around driving paddling people with people around the rivers of America or being the first to ride uh, big Thunder Mountain Railroad because you're the opening crew and they're testing it and and being one of the first ever to ride something like that, um, or and part of your job walking the track afterwards and walking around the roller coaster and walking around and being walking around through all those sets, and uh, you know, in Epcot, built the building of Epcot was very surreal seeing it, seeing you know it build and working on the things that I worked on and seeing it. Come together, uh, and there were some tireless hours. I mean, I one of the things that I did again, again, my system was the main control system that talked to everything else. And a good example is so, the like for example, one of the things that I during the opening, you know, you you have the projectors that work, and you have the lighting guys, and you have the uh curtain guys and you have the audio guys and you have all that stuff and what we had to start doing is we to make pavilions come up before opening because the deadline was coming up we had these uh hit squads and we would go to every single pavilion and everybody would get there and we would stay until we finished it the pavilion was open and i remember that uh i stayed till literally like four in the morning before opening day to get the China Pavilion open, because it wasn't working, and and one thing would that and we had we, our whole hit squad got there, and you know I I my my thing would see the signal to press the button, and then it sent a signal to start all the projectors, but then one of the projectors would not work, so you'd have to call the projection guy and say why did this work, and the guy say oh I'm not getting the signal, oh okay get the electrical guy to make the signal work. And then, or, or the, then the electrical guys, I'm sending the signal and the projection guy go, oh, I have this problem on my end. Okay, it's fixed. And, uh, you know, that kind of thing happened with Canada and France and American Adventure and China and all those things just to get the crowd, get it going. Those were memories that were long, hard days, but it was a feeling of accomplishment because it was like, we just finished this pavilion. It now works it we we did it here it is i we all of us just finished everybody's job the canadian pavilion works we're done china works we're done france works it's done and that was that was a that was a pretty good feeling and i you know remember it like it was yesterday sometimes
0: (laughs) well Thank you so much for all the work that you did, getting all those pavilions running correctly and everything. Um,
1: again, I, I, I played a really, I played, while well, I was like one of the guys on the ground, I wanted to say this too, because you and I were talking to, about this kind of uh, off camera, off camera, off the podcast, is that, you know, I played a, I was one of the guys on the ground and I did a lot of this stuff, but there were so many genius engineers that did this stuff again Guy named Steve Alcorn who still owns a company called Alcorn McBride that has turned into the industry standard for all digital audio and digital video playback in every theme park in the world. And he designed that stuff. He still owns that company. And the reason why is because the stuff works forever. (laughs) I mean, forever. Because he, he designed it like a tank. And the guy, I'm still good. I'm still friends with him, and he's. Just a a genius and i was installing his stuff and you know there are people that had the overall pictures and they were the ones that coordinated the projector guy and they're the ones that shot the film and they were the ones that uh did the uh the faux paint got the faux painters for the mountains and then the sculptors for the exteriors and then all of the things all of the details and there are so many other people that were involved in stuff and i I did my piece. I did my little part, which was kind of the overall control unit. And, uh, i made it happen, but there was somebody else that designed it. Right. And, uh, somebody else that was genius that did it. And, uh, I'm just blessed to be a bit of a good part of it.
0: I I, I want to say real quickly, thank you again for being on this podcast. Um, uh, you know, I, I've enjoyed all your stories and, you know, getting a, Better look behind the scenes of how Epcot ran, especially and uh, you know everything that you did for the Disney Company. Um, where can people find you on social media?
1: Uh, I have an Instagram account. It's just uh, Jim the DJ, J I M T H E D J. That's a you know ampersand Jim the DJ on Instagram and find me and follow me. In fact, most of my uh, most of my posts actually. Uh, or, or when I'm out in the parks, because I still go out and visit the parks very often. Uh, I go out there quite a bit, and still enjoy a tremendous amount. And I, uh, I like doing unusual things, that I, the little hole in the wall things. And I've been actually considering on opening up, a, starting a blog of all of the hidden away things that aren't the mainstream things that. Uh, You find out at Disney and if I do that I'll put that over there too
0: wow that sounds awesome Um, well that's going to wrap it up for SP Nation for this week Um, once again huge thank you to Jim Robinson for coming on the show and we will see you next week